previously on Murder, Etc. You know, the Dawson gang lived here. Well, that's because you got to live somewhere, you know, and, and that they didn't pick, but they may have picked Greenwood County because of Bub Skelton, probably. If you go over up on that backside over there, you'll see, you know, one of the guys in the Dawson gang who's related to so-and-so, and then the other guy who All testified right. in the trial. Everybody's buried here. You know, all the stuff was going crazy. You know, narcs were crazy, city cops crazy, county cops, drug addicts, everybody was running crazy back then. Jackie would do anything for money. Small jobs, big jobs, or whatever. You know. And if he had a big, big job, he had, he had the contacts, you know. I mean, he was just, he was just a criminal man. But Jackie had a lot of connection with a whole lot of people. One was wild. It needed to be tamed. It wasn't a wild west, but it was wild. It was a lot of uh, interesting times. I'd be 69 in December. The only time in my life that I ever felt like this, and I'd have ran across the road that I don't kill Frank Looper, I would have blowed his fucking brains out and wouldn't talk nothing about it. Imagine a mother looking down at our newborn son, proud, afraid, dreaming of what that perfect child will become. A doctor, a lawyer, a scientist who changes the world. Now imagine a farm in southeastern Georgia. On a rainy April morning in 1934, and Ellen Sellers looking down at her first son, imagine her dreaming of a day he becomes a scientist like no one's ever known. She called him Willie. Willie Foster Sellers, a man who turned his boundless ambition into a PhD, a doctorate in the kind of science they don't teach in school. This is the science of bank robbery. And Foster was a master at it. Everybody called him Foster, and generations later, people called him a master, an innovator, and one of America's best damned bank robbers. His question was, first of all, how do we get to the bank? Second, how do we get away from it? Third, how do we watch our money? A man who took the basics of bank robbery. Foster figured out that, first of all, you had to have a means of getting to the bank. The simple protocols that every bank robber knows. You had to have a means of getting away from the bank. And he tweaked them. And so that meant stealing, stealing two vehicles. Tweaked them this way and that. One would be the so-called hot car, which you drive to the bank and escape from. And the other would be the cool car that was hidden off in the woods. If you went to the movies in the summer of 1975, nobody had seen it, and that's the one they'd get into and drive away, ultimately. You might have seen the film Moonrunners, a movie that became the TV show Dukes of Hazard. And if you'd seen those and then watched Foster Sellers' performance, you'd probably hear Waylon Jennings' voice singing good old boys and telling Sellers' story about finding a way to make the people who were supposed to chase him chase their own tails. From Georgia to Virginia, to California to Belize, Foster Sellers became a legend among police. They would find an abandoned road with, with the chain crossing, you know, cut the chain, and take, take them a motor home or something, and they would all display, and they would rob the bank. Long before every bank robbery crew in Hollywood movies put themselves on a timer, before Patty Mitchell and the stopwatch gang, Foster Sellers was in and out before the cops knew he'd come to town. Yeah, was it? I think it was two minutes or three minutes. Once they said, time's up, whatever you didn't have, you know. Whatever Foster didn't have, he'd get later, or in another town, or another state. But he'd get it, because if he couldn't get it, it couldn't be got. He had a scientific approach to it, and it seemed to work because he, he and the others robbed well over 100 banks in the South alone. You've heard of Jesse James. 
John Dillinger, Pretty Boy Floyd. And who knows how many in the West and in the Midwest. Maybe you've seen Point Break, Heat, and the town. And maybe you're asking, if this Foster Sellers is such a big shot, why haven't I ever heard of him? Why didn't anybody ever make a movie about him? Honestly, that's a pretty good question. Because if bank robbery honored its best, Foster Sellers would be a first ballot Hall of Famer. I said, how much did you steal over the years? And uh, we're talking the 1960s and 1970s, and money then was not money today. But he said, I think I probably stole around $8 million, all in all. And that's not a bad figure, even by today's standards. Willie Foster Sellers was a Southern boy with big dreams, one of the FBI's most wanted men, and an escape artist an artist unlike anything Appling County, Georgia had ever produced. My name is Max Corson. I'm from originally from Baxley, Georgia. That's in Appling County, and that is the same county where Foster Sellers grew up. Dr. Max Corson has a real doctorate, not in bank robbery. He's a journalist, one born about the same time as Foster Sellers. I think the thing that a, that a journalist needs to be aware of is that there are a lot of stories on the local level that are worth looking into. Corson covered all kinds of stories in all kinds of places before he started thinking about his county's best-known crook. And he thought, somebody needs to tell this story. The thing about being, I think, a good journalist is to realize that you're responsible for all kinds of stories, and all kinds of stories will come your way. The Foster Sellers story was epic. Corson knew how Sellers grew up because Corson grew up there too. Baxley in those days had two paved roads. Decades before Point Break, before Patrick Swayze was Bodie and surfed into B-movie history as an anti-hero who robbed banks, Corson was walking to the movies where he paid nine cents to watch the kind of epic stories he'd someday tell. Along the way, he took note of a sweet irony he'd talk about later. There was always a brand new green wooden wagon for mules sitting out in front, ready to be sold. I think I can truthfully say that I saw the last generation of about 6,000 years of people who used animals for which the great speed was 10 miles an hour. Those disappeared after World War II because then everybody bought some kind of a car or truck. Who in Baxley, Georgia, land of the mule-drawn wagon, would have ever imagined their foster sellers stealing not one, but two cars over and over again in order to steal millions? Certainly not Mr. and Mrs. Arthur Sellers. Foster Sellers was a product of one of the rural families owned a little bit of land. He was a child of a second marriage and the only child of the second marriage. The father was not particularly interested in him. And uh, as a result, the mother more or less looked after Foster. And that was the one to whom Foster was constantly uh, devoted. For many years, no one outside of Baxley had any reason to think about Foster Sellers. So they wouldn't have known that while he was playing the role of an average student, he was dreaming of turning into the Southern version of a famous Yankee bank robber. His inspiration, even in high school, was to be a criminal. And he was inspired by a famous criminal of the day named Willie the Actor Sutton. Willie Sutton, a New Yorker, was one of America's most iconic holdup artists. The legend says he spent four decades stealing more than $2 million from American banks. Someone once wrote Willie Sutton said he robbed banks because that's where the money is. 
Sutton never said that, but he did say he never felt more alive than when he was inside a bank robbing it. That was his inspiration. And he went from there. He was going to make a million dollars. He was going to take care of his mother. And he was going to build a business of his own and enjoy life like he never had enjoyed it before. And truth of the matter is, he tried. Every time he stole a fair amount of money, he went into some line of business and and lost it. (laughs) His idea was good, but his method was uh, impractical. Foster Sellers tried to go the way of his Baxley, Georgia peers. He went to the Marines. He tried going to school, but somewhere inside him, he had a motor that ran on a whole different kind of fuel, something called the entrepreneurial spirit. So with his motor rumbling, he opened a drive-in restaurant, and it was a hit. It was very popular, and Foster almost immediately used whatever money he could get to buy himself a yellow and black Ford convertible. And in it, he drove the prettiest girls in town up and down the streets instead of looking after his business, which went broke. If you spend enough time researching Foster Sellers, you'll see this pattern repeat itself over and over again. A guy trying to fit into the square world, finding again and again, no matter how talented he was, he couldn't turn himself into a square peg. So he circled back around to what came naturally. At that point, he began moving in the area of criminality. One of those two paved roads out of Baxley, Georgia, was a tourist byway that led from the dry Appling County to a land of drink, drunks, and dreams. And that is where Foster Sellers found his people. On the stretch of US-1 south of Alma were all sorts of juke joints and honky-tonks and pick-em-ups. And uh, this is where Foster began hanging out. And he liked the element of people that he found there. They had different values. They knew or said they knew how to get a lot of money quickly. Dr. Max Corson isn't a Foster Sellers fan, per se. He's Sellers' biographer, one who sought out another boy from Baxley, Georgia, and found him in prison. They traded letters, and Corson realized Sellers wasn't bad at writing. So they collaborated to produce Foster Sellers' version of Foster Sellers' story. Foster wrote what passed for the truth, and I think most of what he wrote was the truth. There was no reason for it not to be. But I think he also chose what he would write, and in some cases he provided his interpretation. So I ended up with a combination essentially of truths and a fair amount of legend. And because Foster is no longer with us, we live with the legend. The legend goes like this. Sellers put together a motley crew. He innovated, and he made it clear once and for all, he was born to steal. Late at night, he and his men would be in a dark bank, fallen angels, surrounded by a halo of bright light. They would take an acetylene torch, which is sort of like something you see at a filling station. They would, of course, steal that. (laughs) Great big heavy thing. They'd break into the bank, and then they would use that to cut slowly but surely into the bank vault. The blowtorch worked, but it was slow. So that boy from Baxley discovered a modified version of a blowtorch. Foster eventually learned about a burning bar, and it would do the job in just a few moments. The only problem with the burning bar was that it was bright, so you had to be very careful when you used it and where, or it would show up inside the bank through the window. Sellers might have kept working in the dark of night by the light of his burning bar forever, but even with his innovations, there were hiccups. 
Cutting into the vault would occasionally burn holes in the money. Little black spots the robbers called frog eyes. Spend a bill with frog eyes at a motel at night? You'd wake up cuddling with an FBI agent in the morning. What's more, the federal government was starting to require banks to beef up their nighttime security. Ever pragmatic, Seller started thinking about his future. This led Foster eventually to realize that bank burglary was an obsolete task. And the better way and the quicker way and the more rewarding way financially was to rob a bank. Walk in with a pistol, demand money, and leave. That was the moment Sellers jumped on the path to becoming a legend, at least among cops. Foster Sellers might have become the kind of legend you see in Hollywood movies. If only the FBI could have caught him sooner, before a man with a better name came along. Instead, Sellers just ran rampant through the South, collecting gangsters and stacks of money like baseball cards. He became a personality, and I think because of his high intelligence, he was a good-looking guy, got along well with the ladies. He had charisma, which separated him from other gangsters. They lacked the, the polish, the skill, the allure that Foster possessed. And one of those gangsters was a young man from a notorious Alabama crime family. Good afternoon, my name's Billy Ray Dawson. I'm from Leeton, Alabama. That is Billy Ray Dawson, one of the Dawsons that made up a Dixie Mafia family from the Muscle Shoals area of Northern Alabama. These days, Billy Ray makes moonshine, legal moonshine. This is his promotional video. I want to show you the product that is made here uh, at Dawson's Distillery. But back when he was a young man in the 1970s, Billy Ray Dawson was a bank robber who hooked up with Foster Sellers' crew. If history had been in any way accurate, that crew of men who spent years taking Southern banks for millions would have been called the Sellers Gang or the Baxley Boys. Anything but the Dawson Gang. How it got in the papers, I don't know, but they attributed it that Billy Ray Dawson was the head of this gang of bank robbers. And nothing could be further from the truth. He wasn't, he didn't even start with them in the beginning. That is Tom Donahue, one of the FBI agents that chased Sellers and his crew around the Southeast. Donahue says he was not the one who coined the Dawson gang name. And today it doesn't matter who coined it, because it's stuck. Max Corson says Foster Sellers believed it was an FBI public relations play. The Dawson gang sounded a whole lot like the Dalton gang, those historic bank and train robbers from the late 1800s that everybody knows about. And so that is how people know it today, the Dawson gang. Foster Sellers' lifelong dream to be as good or better than Willie Sutton was a success. And today, people may still remember the name Willie Sutton, but most folks don't remember the name Foster Sellers. And they don't remember what he really called his band of thieves. He called them good old boys. But people don't remember that. They remember the Dawson gang, which, you gotta admit, probably makes it a lot easier to sell Dawson Distillery moonshine. And as it'll tell you on the back of the bottle here, it cures all aches, pains, dull care, and makes an ace sometimes look like two pairs. <laughs> what in the hell does any of this have to do with Greenville, South Carolina and the murder of a county drug cop? Well, let's go back to that FBI agent. I received my appointment letter in December of 1965. 
and was sworn in in January of 66. Tom Donahue was recovering from throat surgery when we sat in his kitchen with his sons going through Donahue's old files. Surgery or not, Donahue had a lot to say. Two of Donahue's sons that I sat with are cops. One's a lieutenant with the Greenville County Sheriff's Office. Another works for the State Law Enforcement Division and just recently received the Billy Wilkins Award for Excellence in Law Enforcement. Tom Donahue was a G-man, the resident agent for the FBI in Greenville for two decades. He came from New York. If you ever saw the movie Goodfellas, they all came from where I was from. Good part of it was Italian, Irish, and German. They used to laugh and say, you either were a cop, a priest, or who? Donahue came to Greenville right at the peak of the Dawson Gang's wild run across the Southeast. A Carolina hurricane of crime, the eye of which sat in Greenville, South Carolina. I had been used to being around guys like this. Even though these were Southerners, the traits are the same. And I never talked down to them. I always treated them, you know, decently. And he brought with him a New Yorker's understanding of the kind of gangsters he was up against. And that's where a lot of police officers make a mistake. They come on hard at these guys, think they're going to break them. They're not going to break them. Donahue was right. He was up against some of the toughest dudes the South had ever produced. Foster Sellers may have been a gentleman robber, but the men in his circle didn't spend a lot of time on the gentleman part. Sellers ran with guys with names like Scar, Pretty Boy, and Treetop. Killers, thieves, escape artists. One guy who actually busted out of prison with James Earl Ray, the man who assassinated Martin Luther King Jr. And the Dawson gang seemed to have quite a few race car drivers. Phil Gibson had race cars. He had a, a shop over there on Anderson Road where he was in the, the race car business, but he was losing money, and I think that's why he joined them. But most of all, Donahue and his fellow FBI agents were up against Foster Sellers. One mention of his name, and Donahue immediately snaps back to Sellers' early work with a modified blowtorch. He, he was very innovative. I don't know if you ever heard of the bank burglaries where they used the burning bar technique. Yeah. That was kind of Forces innovation. Just like biographer Max Corson, Tom Donahue could look at Sellers and know Sellers was the brains, heart, and devilish grin behind the whole operation. He was kind of an enigma because he, he was a guy who, if he had just applied himself, could have done well. But for some reason... He, he wound up on the wrong side, and it was by choice. He wasn't driven to it. It wasn't poverty or anything like that that pushed him. Once Sellers graduated to robbery, he and his men became infamous for turning into ghosts. They'd hit a bank and then just evaporate, not into thin air, but into the woods. Because who doesn't enjoy a night of camping after a day of bank robbery? One-time prosecutor Billy Wilkins remembers interviewing one of Sellers' good old boys. They took a car out to, uh, in a rural area right next to Lake Murray, and they hid the car. And then they took another car, went to the bank, robbed the bank, brought, then came back here, and then sat in the woods while the cops were running all over the place trying to find them, looking for that car. Then when they leave, they drive the other car out, leave the other car hidden. I said, what'd you do sitting out there in the woods? He said, um, well, actually, we were drinking Pat's Blue Ribbon beer and eating Vienna sausages. After hiding in a place that no one could see, Sellers insisted on transparency, cutting up each robber's percentage immediately. It kept his partners from ever thinking they'd been cheated, but it came with some risk. You heard Tom Donahue talk about the movie Goodfellas, where men who thought they had a big payday coming started spending. Foster Sellers gave the same advice the men in Goodfellas got. No Cadillacs, no fur coats, nothing flashy at all. 
he did not believe in dumping the money and running to go spend the money in Las Vegas or Miami or something like that. So he cautioned the men who worked with him to be more judicious in terms of what they got from it. The guys in Goodfellas ended up dead in a Cadillac, in the back of a trash truck, frozen in a meat truck, while the coda to Layla played in the background, because they didn't listen. The good old boys? Well, they listened, and they worked for so damn long, they became Southern legends. Which is all a good story, the kind of thing that could make a movie. Hell, it has made a lot of good Hollywood movies already. But again, why tell this story now, here, in the middle of an already compelling and complicated story about drug cops, corrupt cops, drug thieves, and contract killers in Greenville, South Carolina? Well, to answer that question, let's play a game. With 1970s cop Melvin Croft, I'll say a name, and he'll tell me what that name means to him. I'll start with Bub Skelton. Remember Bub? <laughs> the Dawson Gang. Yeah. You know oh, I was working back then. Yeah, there's that name again. Bub Skelton, the longtime Greenville County deputy, whose name has become locally synonymous with the Dawson Gang. Why? Well, for one reason, legend has it, Bub didn't mind running a very personalized taxi service for the Dawson gang. Robbed the bank in Pickens, and Bub got one and picked him up in the Greenwood County Sheriff car. Damn, Bub. Uh, yeah, hell yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Willie Foster Sellers, he had him a buddy, a hookup, a man with whom he was happy to share a foxhole, and that man was Bub Skelton. You'll remember what Billy Wilkins told you. You know, the Dawson gang lived here. Well, that's because you got to live somewhere, you know, and, and that they didn't pick, but they may have picked Greenville County because of Bub Skelton, probably. Spend a year or so running around Greenville asking about Bub Skelton and prepare to hear some stories about the Dawson gang. Long before I started poking my nose in Greenville County's business, attorney Eric Gottlieb did the Bub Skelton Dawson gang tour. Yeah, Bub Skelton, right? Here's a guy, his job was to dispatch all of the, the radial patrol units around Greenville County. And he was working in cahoots with serial bank robbers to make sure that the patrol units were at opposite sides of the county as compared to the banks that were being knocked off at the time. If you didn't quite catch that, here's a quick review of how it worked. You remember Danette Green. There was a lot of faceless people out there on that radio that I communicated with, and you got to know whether you ever really saw them or not. She was one of the young people who worked in the Greenville County Dispatch Office back in the early 1970s. In those days, it was 8 to 4, 4 to 12, and 12 to 8. We got 30-minute breaks even back then. You didn't get an hour. There was a little canteen in the bottom of the courthouse. Most of the time, we'd run down there and get a sandwich, or you brought something from home. Green would not talk about Bub with me, but her time in dispatch would have put her in very close proximity to Bub Skelton. A man who, very conveniently, would be in the dispatch office when the Dawson Gang's bank robbery calls came in. It's not like we got now where you have 911 operators all over the place. And that's Lynn West, a man who worked around Greenville County law enforcement for three decades. The story on Bub Skelton was, I, I feel sorry for his family on this for even saying that. Like a lot of other people, West hates to talk about Bub for fear of hurting his family. But... When the Dawson gang would run a job and there would be a call in on thing, he would either not immediately send the call out, but he would take a sweet time about doing it. Or sometimes I missed the location of the bank and they'd go to a different area and all. But how many times that occurred, I have no earthly idea. How many times? Enough. Enough times to become forever associated with the Dawson gang. 
Talk to just about anybody about Bub, and you'll hear a story. Talk to Larry Smith, the man who once watched Bub Skelton drop off drunk airmen at Donaldson Air Force Base so they could sneak in after curfew. Smith knows the legend of Bub and the Dawson gang, too. They would meet Bub. They would put the goods in Bub's trunk in the police car, and they're chasing an empty car. If they had caught him, they had nothing there. And I'm thinking, man, this is the guy that I used to know. He used to come up my uncle's all the time. The point is this. Foster Sellers, that man from Baxley, Georgia, eventually became very comfortable in Greenville County. And almost every story you hear says Bub Skelton was a top-notch host. Foster Sellers said Bub Skelton used to score his diabetes meds for him. And in Max Corson's book on Sellers, Corson tells a curious story about Bub Skelton. According to the book, Skelton told Sellers and a man named Larry Hacker about a convenience store where the owner kept a bunch of cash in a safe. It was a small-time job, but Sellers was short on cash, and he had a ride in Skelton's car. Sellers says Skelton admitted to them there was a real possibility the FBI already had a tail on him, but he wasn't going to go down easy. He'd shoot his way out if he had to. So Sellers put on a ski mask he could pull over his face, and Hacker put on an Afro wig and painted his face with grease paint, trying to look like a black man. They robbed the store, ran back out to Skelton's car, and listened as dispatchers put out an APB for two suspects, one white and one black. The book doesn't say whether the sheriff's office ever arrested a black man for the robbery, but it does say Sellers and Hacker got away clean in Bub Skelton's car. And then when I hear about the Dawson gang, and he's part of it, and they're putting it in the trunk of his car, you, you stop and think, man, this is somebody I know. I thought he was a good guy. It turns out he's a crook. <laughs> According to Dr. Corson, Sellers was wary of Bub Skelton until that convenience store job. And after that, they hung out at Adam's junkyard and used Greenville as home base for the Dawson gang. And it was perfect. Greenville is the biggest city in the upstate of South Carolina, one surrounded by a lot of small towns that back then were one industry mill towns. The thing about an industry is that it has employees, and employees have to be paid. Knowing that, that made the little town attractive. Attractive to a master bank robber who quickly figured out those small towns had banks. And when it came time to pay the mill workers, the big city banks would ship loads of cash to the small towns to cover the paychecks. Foster took notes. They loaded it up on Wednesday and took it in for Thursday in order that the payments could be made either Thursday afternoon or Friday. So Foster and his gang used Greenville as a nerve center. A nerve center from which they branched out, almost always on Thursday or Friday, and robbed bank after bank after bank, often with the help of Bub Skelton, the man who was both the nicest guy the square world had ever known and a straight crook. It's a bit of cognitive dissonance. Billy Wilkins is still trying to sort out. I mean, he did his job on one side of Bub was a dedicated law enforcement officer, and he was fearless. I mean, he'd walk into a gun battle, but he had another side of him that was a criminal, and he used his law enforcement position to assist people, usually by using his position as a deputy sheriff to um, send deputies in the wrong direction or tip off when investigations are happening or something's coming down or when a raid's coming down. And FBI agent Tom Donahue? Bub Skelton made Donahue's job all that much harder. 
And yet, Donahue liked the guy. I'll admit that. But outside of this crowd was a good law enforcement officer. But with this crowd, I mean, there was so much going on in Greenville at the time. And Greenville was notorious. Lieutenant Frank Looper, just months away from his murder, probably didn't give a damn about bank robbery. And there's a chance he couldn't have given a damn about Bub Skelton either. But for the fact, Bub had a buddy who would end up spending eternity just 100 yards from Frank Looper. If you go over up on that backside over there, you'll see, you know, one of the guys in the Dawson gang who's related to so-and-so, and then the other guy who All testified right. in the trial. Everybody's buried here. The day that I walked through Graceland Cemetery with Frank Looper's cousin Adele, I told her that a member of the Dawson gang was buried just a few rows over from Frank Looper. That man's name was Luther Lee Cannon, but everybody just called him Luke. Luke Cannon. And you might remember that conversation I had with Billy Wilkins about a massive drug heist at a Greenville County prescription drug lab. Table Rock, Table Rock Labs, and they, got a, they said a million dollars worth of amphetamines. And Luke Cannon was a biker. When Wilkins said that, I honestly thought he said Luke Cannon was a biker, which would have been news to me because Luke Cannon was not a biker. At the time, the Cannon name was synonymous with cars, car dealerships, race cars, fast four-wheeled screaming machines. Larry Smith sold racing wheels for a good portion of his career, and Luke Cannon was a face he knew. I remember he was sort of a tall, skinny, lanky, lanky guy, and just kind of wild. He'd hang out over at the pool hall a little bit. He liked cars, hot cars. Cars look good, fix up and stuff like that. No, Wilkins had not said biker. He had said banker. But not the kind of banker you're thinking. Not the scared tellers who had to look up at men in ski masks, screaming and demanding money. Luke Cannon was a banker of a whole different sort. He didn't rob the bank. He didn't sell the dope. But he was the guy that kept the cash, kept the dope, and made sure that it was dribbled out so that nobody was flashing a lot of money at one time. And the drugs stayed around to keep a constant flow of cash coming into the organization. Before he ended up buried in the same cemetery as Frank Looper, Luke Cannon was the man behind the scenes. The guy who set up the jobs, held the loot, and took care of problems when they arose. FBI agent Tom Donahue might have liked Bub Skelton, but he did not like Luke. Luke was also involved in the drug stuff. A man who sat in the shadows, and according to Donahue and some other people I've talked to, covered his own ass by feeding information to the cops. Kept the guns and all the equipment and stuff in between the robberies. He, like, stored it. But he was sleazy enough to talk to people in law enforcement after the fact and tell them, oh, there was a bank at such and such a place, and I heard that any and so-and-so and so-and-so did the job, but I don't know anything else. This is like three, four days afterwards. He told me a lot about what they did, about how they, he, he kept the drugs, and with Jackie Delk and those, a few others would sell them, but they just sell them a little bit at a time to keep the cash supply coming. And so, to understand the through line from Baxley, Georgia, to Greenville, South Carolina, you have to trace the many ways those lines crisscross through Bub Skelton and Luke Cannon. In 1975, a group of men met in secret, trying to find the connections, creating something like you might see on a cop show, mugshots and names with twine strung between them. These secret crime fighters started by making a list. And we sat around the first time and said, let's name in descending order of culpability. There's number one will be the most culpable. Let's find out who, who we going who who we looking at. Billy Wilkins was among those people meeting in secret and making the list. 
and right there in their top 20 was a name you'll recognize. Jackie Delk was on the list. Jackie Delk, one of the three men popped for the people's drug burglary four weeks before Frank Looper's murder. And when Delk realized he'd left his driver's license at the crime scene, he called someone to help him fix the problem. A fixer. A fixer named Luke Cannon. And when Wilkins continued listing their top 20, another well-known name ended up there. They were naming the Dawson gang members, and of course, Bub Skelton was on the list. And no matter how many police reports or newspaper articles you read, you won't find this. Billy Wilkins says, the night of that million-dollar Table Rock heist, Bub Skelton was there. I do know he was involved in the Table Rock laboratory thing because he was kind of surveillance. Uh, it, when a, any security guard would ride by or anything else, he would radio the crowd inside. They'd back the truck up to the dock, the loading dock, so it didn't look suspicious. Since the Table Rock burglaries seem to be coming up more and more, there's a few things you should probably know about them. First, there was more than one. The thieves hit Table Rock a few times. And in at least one of those jobs, the thieves got into a vault full of drugs using a blowtorch. And those drugs would show up for years when Dixie Mafia gangsters got busted. They stole so much, the banker, Luke Cannon, was holding for a long time. But that Luke had gotten, I mean, was repackaging the drugs at his house with his mother. They were putting it in capsules and stuff that was stolen. And then there's this. Very soon, I'll introduce you to someone who was deeply involved in all of this. He may know more than any living human about what really happened in 1970s Greenville. And he tells me there were a couple of people who were worried that someone was about to bust them for the Table Rock heist and all the drugs that came out of it. And who were they worried about? Lieutenant Frank Looper. While you chew on that, let me remind you about the day of Frank Looper's murder, when FBI agent Tom Donahue went to the crime scene and the local cops there turned him away. I asked him why he thought that happened. I think they knew who did it. I think they knew damn well who set it up, or some of them did. They didn't want anybody coming in to, you know, look at the truth. You heard that in a previous episode, but here's something you haven't heard. I was always thought it was highly questionable. But I, I mean, there's nothing I could go to court on. There's nothing I could put in an affidavit. It was just... And, uh, you know, a gut feeling that there was more to it than met the eye. That is something you'll hear a lot if you interview Donahue. He doesn't want you leaving with some documents that might be false information. When I sat with him, he wouldn't even let me look at some of the things he had, simply because he knew for a fact they were inaccurate. But once I learned he didn't believe Charles Wakefield Jr. killed Frank Looper or his father, I wondered if Agent Donahue had any other theories. And this is what he said. If you look at that, and who would have motive? I don't know Luke was involved in that case, so I thought maybe he or somebody else put him up to it, but I, can't, I have no proof. Donahue had no proof, but he had no problem saying Luke Cannon's name aloud. Luke Cannon, the man who handled Jackie Delk's problem after the bungled drugstore robbery. Luke Cannon, the man who worked with Bub Skelton and the Dawson gang during that 1970s bank robbery spree. Luke Cannon, the man who Billy Wilkins and Tom Donahue say worked with Bub Skelton to steal and distribute an absolute fortune in amphetamines. Luke Cannon, the man buried a few rows over from Lieutenant Frank Looper. There is absolutely nothing to indicate Foster Sellers was in any way connected to Frank Looper. 
chances are the two men never knew each other existed. But I've asked myself hundreds of times over the years, what would have happened if Foster Sellers chose Atlanta or Birmingham or Biloxi as the home base for the Dawson gang? What would have happened if the FBI wasn't so focused on Greenville County? What would have happened if Greenville wasn't forced to deal with the fact organized crime had the city in a chokehold? How long would it have lasted? Maybe long enough to steal Greenville's last breath of hope for law and order. Because Foster Sellers was not just a robber, he was a collector, and he collected badasses to do his bidding. Bad men who kept on stealing long after Sellers moved on. Underlying it all was his intelligence and his charisma. He had people who trusted him and who would work with him and do what he said. And but for the men he ended up trusting, Foster Sellers might have gone on robbing banks until he died. Because, as Dr. Max Corson is fond of saying, he just did it, and they couldn't catch him. And the rest of the Dawson gang, the Dixie Mafia, the good old boys who had been running Greenville for longer than anyone knew. The way old Larry Smith remembers it, those gangsters were pretty sure they were just as smart as Foster Sellers. The, the way they talked, they, they didn't think they could be caught, didn't care if it was caught, because they, they thought they had it. They, they thought they were in charge, invincible. Luke is probably the one I heard the most about that just throwed money like it was nothing. Because it was an endless supply. If I run out, I'll just go to the bank and get some more. Thanks to Dr. Max Corson for having me up to his home in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and sharing his research into Foster Sellers. Corson's book about Foster Sellers, Dixie Mafia Gangster, is available in Kindle edition on Amazon or in paper form on Corson's website, maxcorson.com. We've got a link to Corson's website on the Murder Etc. site, murderetcpodcast.com. This was our 10th full episode, and we still have a ways to go. To make sure you don't get behind, please go subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to Murder Etc. That way, you won't miss this next time on Murder Etc. I was hesitant about giving his name. And he does have connections on the outside. I'm talking about on the criminal side, but I know he's got connections. At least one person he's connected with Oh man, that's hard. That's that's opening another door right there. I'm not sure I want to open. All right, the man who still scares Greenville, South Carolina. That's next time on Murder Etc.